everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope that you're doing well, staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet actor and writer Jim Piddick. For four decades, he's appeared on Broadway and on the big and small screen in movies that you might have heard of like Independence Day, Lethal Weapon 2, A Mighty Wind, Austin Powers and Goldmember, and on shows like Modern Family, Mom, Two and a Half Men, Lost, Monk, Friends, the list goes on and on. Jim looks back at his career in a funny and frank new memoir called Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood. It's available now wherever fine books are sold, and we'll get a preview from Jim Piddick just a little bit later on in the show. First up, Andy Garcia. He's been a fixture in Hollywood for more than three decades, having starred in or had supporting roles in memorable films like The Untouchables, and we talk about that a little bit later on, The Godfather Part 3, as well as Steven Soderbergh's rebooted Ocean's Heist movies. Soon, he'll star in an upcoming remake of Father of the Bride and the fourth installment of the action franchise The Expendables. In his new film, Big Gold Brick, Andy Garcia plays an enigmatic middle-aged father of two who enlists the help of a fledgling writer to pen his biography. The circumstances leading up to the arrangement are quite astonishing, and efforts to write the biography are quickly stymied by, well, what can only be described as chaos. He stars alongside Emery Cohen, Megan Fox, Lucy Hale, and Oscar Isaac. Big Gold Brick is available on digital and on demand right now. Andy Garcia joined me via Zoom. It's a miracle the kid's alive. We may experience mood swings, agitation, confusion. Can you smoke in here? I'm afraid you can't. Name's Floyd. Dr. I told me that you were a writer. Would you consider writing my biography? Biography? What I'm proposing is that you come and stay with me and my family until you get yourself back on your feet. Hey, are you all right? Is that you? Of course, who'd you think it was? I'm intrigued. Oh, there's a lot more where that came from. This is uh, an unusual movie, and what I loved about it is that it is unafraid to swing for the fences. Tell me a little bit about what you thought when the script first came across your desk. Well, yeah, I, I, I sort of had the... Uh... The same impression. I was a bit mind-boggling. It was like, wow, this uh, this piece of material is very unique. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of uh, it's it's have a lot of different tonalities to it, a lot of different sort of genres in within one idea of how to tell a story. And uh, I was uh, very curious, but I didn't quite have. I needed to have more information on what what it was aspiring to be. You know, from the director. And Oscar Isaac was in the movie with us as an old friend. And he was the one who was also a producer. He's the one who sent me the script and said, check this out. So I called him and I, I said, Oscar, you know, like, are you sure you sent me the right script? You know, <laughs> this, this thing is crazy. And he goes, I know, man, it's crazy. You know, sort of the character lives, you know, as a guy who's living, you know, he's very light on his feet. You know, he's, mm -hmm. he's got a, he's trying to take every day as a surprise for him. And he tries to take every opportunity or every angle in life. Uh, to perpetuate his own uh, uh, survival and uh, personal wealth, you know. And his uh, own so, mythology as well. Yeah, and his own mythology, exactly. So I said, oh, that, you know, maybe we, what we need to do is kind of throw yourself into this piece and begin to uh, take, you know, the, have the attitude in the season, in the work, and in the characters you're dealing with all the time, the other, your fellow actors, with that 
sensibility with that sort of uh, point of view, you know? And so it was a lot of fun for me that way. We don't see you do uh, a lot of comedy and uh, there are a, a lot of comedic elements to Big Gold Brick. Is the process any different or is the script the script and you approach the character from the words that are on the page? No, no, I, there, you know, I, I love comedy. I started when I first moved to LA in the late seventies, I, I did make several years. I was a house member of an improvisational theater group at the comedy store. and I've always been enamored with it. I, I was blessed that I got, you know, known as an actor, first of all, period, no, began to get work. And I always played darker characters, you know, people who were, were sort of antagonists or killing people and or in drama. So you kind of get, you know, typecast a little bit in that way, which is a good thing because you're working. But I, you know, I did a lot of comedies along the way, movies that I produced myself. I would uh, always have that that element in it or tonality. And, and uh, so... I think you have to understand when you're doing comedy, what, you know, what, what, what genre of comedy you're doing, you know, and, and also sometimes even in, in naturalistic dramas, there's always an element of humor that you, that if you have a third eye to a situation, you can in, in, instill in it, you know, to, to have a, a sort of a, a wider palette of colors in the film. So um, it's all interrelated. I don't think there's one thing or another that, I don't think you need to be a specialist in one thing or another. Comedic actors can be very good dramatically and vice versa. It's just, it's up to, it's really up to the individual actor. You know? You're listening to Andy Garcia on the Richard Krause show. See him in big gold brick now on VOD. I wanted to ask you about a quote that I heard uh, that your father used. And he says, never take a step back, even to gain momentum. And since I've heard that quote, it has really stayed with me. Can you tell me what that quote means to you and perhaps how it has embedded itself in your life? Well, you know, my father was a, a, a political exile here in the United States in the early 60s from Cuba. We left Cuba two and a half years after the revolution. So um, after the, re the Castro regime uh, basically nationalized everyone's personal belongings, their properties, their businesses, their, their finances, everything was taken away from everyone, including their personal freedoms and their right, your freedom of speech and all that stuff. So when we came to the United States, you know, my father and mother, you know, borrowed a dime at the airport, babe, you know, and we had to start. My father was a lawyer and a farmer. Uh, you know, his first job was a janitorial job, which was he was eager to do because we had to move forward in this country and provide and for a family and move forward. And his motto was always that, you know, it's like just the slow and steady steps, you know, and, and I always related to that. That's been kind of a, a mantra for me. I always felt that, uh, that in life, you're going to fall many times because obstacles are obstacles. Sometimes you have to fall, but you have to fall over the obstacle. You have to fall forward. So you're always going to, you know, stand up a little, get up a little bit closer to you, one step closer to your destination. So I've always used that mantra and, you know, my father's someone I respected very much. I've been reading about your first seven years in Los Angeles as an actor. I read about the comedy store. I read about uh, doing what is it called? The Humana Humanas, the, the background work that you would do where. Oh, yeah, they're called Walla. Walla. Oh, yeah, Walla Wallace. Yeah. yeah. And I, I read about all those things and it, it took a little while. It took seven years or so for things to really take off for you. How did you learn resilience in those seven years? Was it reaching back to that advice that your father gave you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 
you know, I saw the resilience and the work ethic that both my father and mother had mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, to build a, a family and a business here in the United States from scratch. And so I, I had to have that example. You know, that's it. Back to Big Gold Brick, I know that you don't like discussing uh, the motives of your characters because you want to know what the audience thinks. Yeah. Uh, so is there anything that we need to know about Floyd going in that perhaps won't become immediately obvious but might help us understand the character? Uh, no, actually not. I've, in fact, the less you know about the character in this particular movie, the better, you know. Yeah. I think anything that you allude to, which I already have already in this conversation a little bit, is already a cheat, you know? Right. Uh, because it's, uh, you know, sometimes you can talk about a character in, in general terms and say, you know, uh, George Stone in The Untouchables is the son of an immigrant. And uh, he had, like myself, a great example from his father and grandfather. And he joined the police force because he wanted to make his family proud and right the wrong. But in this case, for Floyd, <laughs> that something like that would even be a betrayal because I think you just need to see how you, how you are introduced to him and how, you know, try to figure him out, you know? And I guarantee that you won't see the twists coming. And I think that's one of the things I found really refreshing about this. So often movies telegraph. Right. But, I, I, I can I can kind of feel I know where it's going. Sure. I found this one completely refreshing because uh, every scene kind of took me by surprise. And I think that's what you want in storytelling. Yeah, well, that's what, it, you know, that's what enticed me to get involved because, you know, you turn the page and you go like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then you go, OK, you know, or, OK, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's- this movie begins and this doesn't give anything away with Floyd wanting Samuel, the Emery Cohen's character, to write a biography for him. Have you ever thought about writing a biography of your life? You know, I've been I was I've been approached a number of years ago. I was approached uh, and. Uh, you know, I sort of kind of thought, well, I told her, listen, I'm not interested in really telling tales out of school and saying, oh, I remember one time when so-and-so did it, I, you know, and that's not it. But maybe there's a way to, to, if you think there's a potential interest in this thing, you know, that I can, I'll explore it. And uh, then I thought maybe it would be, it would be good to put something down. So just on record, mm-hmm. the, the experience that my family, myself and my family, my parents had, coming into this country. And if that is just a, a document from my grandkids or great grandkids, that would be worth the effort. So, you know, I did contemplate it. I haven't, I haven't started it. That offer sort of uh, went by the wayside. I think the company who was, had that division, I think it was Penguin, that kind of uh, shut down for a while. So uh, I think I would if there was someone interested and I think I would. Uh, just recently, someone asked me, what would you call it? I said, before I forget. <laughs> You're listening to Andy Garcia on The Richard Krause Show. His movie, Big Gold Brick, is on VOD right now. It is an offbeat comedy that takes some big swings. Swings for the fences. It doesn't quite always get there, but it's worth a look. You'll find it on VOD. In this segment, we talk about my favorite Andy Garcia movie, The Untouchables. Set in the Prohibition era in the United States, Kevin Costner plays federal agent Elliot Ness. 
he assembles a small, hand-picked team to stop ruthless Chicago gangster Al Capone. The movie co-stars Sean Connery as the veteran Irish-American officer Jim Malone and Charles Martin Smith as the accountant Oscar Wallace. Rounding out The Untouchables is Andy Garcia. Now, at first, director Brian De Palma wanted Garcia to play Al Capone's sadistic henchman Frank Nitti, but fearing being typecast as a gangster, Garcia campaigned for the role of George Stone, the Italian cop who gets accepted into Elliot Ness's famous band of lawmen because of his marksmanship and integrity. In the film's most famous scene, a standoff at Chicago's Union Station, Elliot Ness and George Stone are there to arrest a mob accountant who holds evidence that could put Capone in prison. Under a ticking clock, the action focuses on the railway station steps as the accountant is held hostage by one of Capone's men and a young mother with a baby in a carriage gets involved in the action. At the climax of the scene, the mom loses control of the baby carriage and it careens down the stairs as bullets fly. That's where Andy Garcia became a movie star. We'll talk about that in just a sec. The whole scene is an homage to the Odessa Steps montage in Sergei Eisenstein's famous 1925 silent movie Battleship Potemkin. It is a showstopper, but Andy Garcia tells me it was originally meant to be a much different scene. Here's Andy Garcia. You know, Brian does storyboards. So when I first got to The Untouchables to Chicago, he took me in his office and he had the, the entire movie storyboarded uh, in little index cards. And it was just his, him like stick figures. You know, it was like he understood it more than anybody else looking at it. You know? <laughs> but he had it all there and he kind of worked me through, you know, what was going down. But I don't remember if we were already scheduled to shoot the thing in the train station. Because the original, if I remember correctly, the original material had the thing actually on a train, right. a moving train. And then that was very difficult for production and this and that. And if I remember correctly, Brian, you know, told the studio, said, well, give me the, uh, the train, the steps at the train station. And if you can give me that, I'll design a, a, a sequence around as an homage to the you know, the Odessa steps, I think they were called the in Battleship Potemkin. And uh, and then, though, of course, he had those storyboarded and he had me and Kevin coming in. And I remember coming in and there was two double uh, turning doors. What do they yeah. call them? Turnstiles. Turnstiles. Yeah. There were two coming into the, into the uh, train station on the top floor because then you walk down the steps to where the trains go. He said, oh, have you and Kevin come in through here? And I said to Brian, I said, well, why don't we, you know, would it not be better if we both come in simultaneously as a reveal through the turnstiles together? And then he said, oh, yeah, let's do that. And then we went down and then he took us through the whole the whole sequence and he started to pick at it. And then finally, we got to the thing where I had to save, you know, save the carriage. You're listening to Andy Garcia on the Richard Krause Show. We're talking about the famous Union Station scene in the classic film, The Untouchables. For more Andy Garcia, check out Big Gold Brick, now on VOD. I was I was on the street having a cigarette. I used to smoke in those days. And and they called me in and, and the, the stunt coordinator and Brian and the, the baby carriage was at the fat, you know, at the last steps. Yeah. And he said, okay, Andy, you're going to have, um, we want you to come in here. And what would you do? What would you think you would do if you would come in here and toss one of your guns to, to Kevin 
and somehow stopped the carriage from crashing. I already had, they already had shot me turning around up there and, you know, coming down the hallway and stuff. So it was going to be like this surprise. So it was a marble uh, floor, uh, terrazzo, actually, I think, if I remember correctly. And I had wool pants on. And I, I said to myself, well, I used to play baseball. And I think I knew those pants would slide on that floor. And I said, I could just come in and do like a throw the throw the gun and do like a little hook slide underneath the uh, thing. They said, uh, OK, can you can you show us that? Uh, and I said, yeah. So you say, OK, on the count of three, you know, let go of the thing. And I was of the baby carriage as it comes yeah, down. Yeah, it was like two steps and I was 10 steps away. It was going to be, you know, the frame, you know. And uh, he said, one, two, three, we walked, they let go and I slid and I threw the gun and got underneath the carriage and then pointed the gun at the, the guy and Brian, that was the rehearsal. And Brian said, oh, great, let's do that. You know? <laughs> and, then, uh, and, then, uh, and then we did, a, you know, maybe one or two takes, I forget, but that, that's, what, that's what happened for that moment. He had the idea that I would come in and we just hadn't worked out the actual stunts, you know. <laughs> Stay there, he's all right. I said, hold it! What the? See, I'm walking out with the bookkeeper, and the bookkeeper and me are driving away. See? Or else he dies. He dies, and you ain't got nothing. You got five seconds to make up your mind. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what you want to know. Shut up! I'm not kidding, that crazy. You don't have to do this. I'll tell you what you want to know, for Christ's sake. You got him? Yeah, I got him. <laughs> One! Will you stop it? Take him. It is a perfect moment in a yeah. great movie. Like... It it was, I was, it was a great privilege to have that moment to, to exercise, you know, to, to be part of it. Also to pay off the character because <laughs> in the movie, you know, the, the, the untouchables is like, is the throwback to the seven samurai, you know, which then became yep. the magnificent seven and the dirty dozen and uh, Ocean's 11 and, you know, <laughs> wild bunch. There's a million movies really told with that format. One man gathers a group of specialists, to right the wrong, right? right. And, and Stone was the young sharpshooter. Uh, I remember going to dinner one night with Kevin in Chicago, and we were at a, sitting at like at a counter of one of the Chicago, like a bar and grill. We had ordered a beer and a couple of burgers. We were sitting on the counter, you know, on the counter. And they had these old movies playing on, on, the, on the televisions. That was like the theme. And there was like a Buster Keaton movie or somebody. And or it's an old Western thing. And they had this stunt man kind of climbing up the side of the thing and, and you know, doing this very acrobatic kind of monkey thing going to the top and then jumping off the thing and then on a horse. And then and I said to Kevin, I said, that's George Stone. Right. That's George Stone. And Kevin said, like, damn, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like say, yeah, man, that's him. You know, like you. You found him, you know, I said, that's the guy. I got to live up to that, you know, but that's what he brings to the, to the untouchables. You know? And so that moment 
very intelligently because the David Mammoth script really defined those characters and their functions. You know, it was a brilliant, lean, clean narrative in that movie. And that, mo that moment really paid off, uh, you know, why George Stone was part of that group. Perhaps the next time we'll talk about The Great Escape, because I know that's a movie that you love and uh, was one of the films that sort of pushed you yeah, into acting. And, and James Colburn really in that movie is the sort of George Stone character. He's the man with the, with a knife, and his his introductory scene is not unlike the introductory scene of of uh, you know of George Stone in The Untouchables. Well, I think that's why The Untouchables works so well is because not only is it a great story in that, but it's a traditionally told, beautiful old school. It's not old fashioned, but it's an old school uh, movie with great characters, great action, and you're on board with each and every character. So exactly, well defined. Thank you. That was Andy Garcia on the Richard Krause Show talking all about one of my favorite movies, The Untouchables. You can see him right now in a new film called Big Gold Brick. It's an offbeat comedy that's on VOD right now. In his new book, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, veteran actor Jim Pittock calls Larry David a very bad name and shares stories of his four decades working on Broadway and in Hollywood. Along the way, he picked up some life lessons while working in movies and television shows like Lethal Weapon 2, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, Modern Family, Two and a Half Men, and Lost, and he shares those stories in the book. Jim Pittock joins me via Zoom from his home in the Hollywood Hills. We'll start with uh, something that I just thought was uh, very cool in that you have an English pub in your house. That must have been uh, some kind of comfort to you, I think, during the pandemic when you were, uh, what's the term that you use? Uh, pandemically tainted for, yeah. the, uh, for the last couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> when I bought the house, it was the cherry on the cake. I found this. It's the tiniest pub in the world. It's like about 10 or 12 foot by 12 foot. So I guess it was a storage room underneath the house. But the, 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 it's brilliantly done. And it's, it's so authentic. It even smells like an old British pub, uh, country pub, because of the, the creosote that they used in the 1930s underneath the, the beams. Um, to, to be honest with you, it must have been, it, it's a complete folly. I should have converted it into a voiceover studio or a gym or something years ago, but I can't. It's just, it's a museum piece and people just are blown away when they see it because they walk in and go, I'm in a British pub. Um, so it, it hardly ever gets used. I think we've had one small party where we, we uh, a friend of mine who owns a brewery in California had always wanted to be behind the bar serving his own beers. And so he... <laughs> He's a, a multi-squillionaire, but, but loved being landlord for an evening behind in the pub. There's life lessons that are sprinkled throughout the book. I'd like to ask you just for your comment on them. So Paul Schrader, there's a story here, which perhaps you can uh, talk about. But that one is never judge a book by its cover. That's the, the lesson that I took away from that. It's essentially uh, a book full of anecdotes and mm -hmm. stories. And I wanted it to be. My life story isn't of interest particularly to me, so I didn't think it would be of interest to too many other people. <laughs> so I wanted to structure it around my career and, and, and what, you know, that journey that I've gone through. But basically, it's more outward looking than inward looking, um, which is pr probably the right way to go. <laughs> um, so it's more like in the vein of the David Niven kind of books or, or even um, Gerald Durrell, My Family and Other Animals, where it's about other people as much as it's about me and my reaction to them and how I, I perceive them. 
Uh, and that was one, you've picked out one particular story that was, I mean, about, um, you know, how, how you shouldn't always jump to conclusions. Uh, and the, uh, this was being, it was in a hotel bar in, in Bucharest. And I, there was this sort of very drunk guy at the bar who I thought was, you know, he looked just like an American businessman, the sort of average, you know, conservative uh, sort of uh, loud American that's, that's, that's now been sort of probably replaced by the loud Brit abroad. Um, and, and everyone was sort of fast disappearing. And I got stuck there because he sort of yelled out to me, I will buy you a drink. And um, I was, I've really got to go. I've got to work tomorrow. I'm shooting. And no, 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 no let me give you a drink. And so I, I, I kind of ended up at the bar uh, sort of quickly tolerating this situation going, oh, God, how can I get out of this? This is really awful. And the guy says, yeah, yeah, I'm in show business. And I'm like, oh, here we go. You know, makes porn movies in Eastern Europe or something. And then he said, yeah, yeah. And then I told him, he said, what do you do? And I explained. And I said, I'm also a writer. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm a writer too. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> And then I, he said, what, what have you written? And I told him a couple of things. He said, oh, yeah. And I said, what have you written? Dreading the answer. And there was a beat. And he said, I wrote a film called Taxi Driver. Uh, and I was like, oh, <laughs> and then he held out his hand and went, uh, my name is Paul Schrader. And um, he was a, a very drunk. But then I've actually seen an interview with him when he's sober and he sounds the same. He's got this kind of slurry. You're listening to Jim Piddick on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, is available wherever fine books are sold. We, we kind of then talked. I mean, we had a lot of mutual people we knew in common, like George C. Scott, we'd both worked with them. Mm. Um, and the, and, and the, the longer the evening went on, the more I became the best person he'd ever met in show business. And um, he offered me a part in the film that he was doing in, in, in Romania that I couldn't be in. I said, Look, I've still got five weeks to go here. I'm shooting. I can't do two films at the same time. He said, oh, yeah, you can. We'll work it out. You're going to be brilliant in my film. And, and, and then um, we kind of ended the evening quite late. And, and I was glad I didn't have to sh actually shoot the next day. I think I was using that as an excuse. And I got up late to head down to lunch and... Um, and saw him in the in the elevator, and he looked like death. And I I wasn't sure if he even remembered who I was. And I said, oh, it was great talking to you last night, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, yeah, I was really drunk. I was really, really drunk. And we shook hands when the elevator got to the ground floor, and I went off to lunch, and he went off to whatever he was doing. And, of course, I never heard or swung or saw him again. <laughs> Um, but but it was it was just yeah the, the, as you say the story like that which is kind of amusing I hope in the telling of it and when when you read the book uh, 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 it does I usually have a conclusion at the end of each thing mm -hmm. you know and you also talk a great deal in the book and and it's inferred by some of the stories that you tell uh, about risk taking about uh, pushing yourself always. And there's a lot of really interesting uh, talk near the end of the book about the choices that you make. And obviously making a choice to take a risk is a choice. But you say something, and I've got the quote here, um, they define your destiny. The choices that you make define your destiny. Talk a little bit about that, because I think we all in our day to day, we talk about we at least think about the decisions that we make, what you're going to have for breakfast, what you're when you're going to go out for a walk and take in some sunshine. But it's a bigger yeah. question than that, that you're asking and answering in the book, I think. 
It is, and it was a th- sort of three bigger themes that emerged from my telling all these silly, funny stories. And uh, and one was my eternal search for family, which comes mm-hmm. through, and I kind of figured that was what the book was a lot of it was about. And and our as a human race, our search for family, what is the meaning of family? And then you're right, as it were, that the, the idea that choices totally define. I do believe that that every single choice, every minute, every second of your life, you're making a choice. I could tell you a story now about something, or I could tell you a story about something else. One story may change somebody's life if they mm-hmm. hear it. One may not. May, whatever I say will probably just, you know, go over people's heads or not. But, but everything you do, and um, you know, sometimes we have uh, they're, they're choices that we instinctively make. Sometimes they're conscious, and I do think that that actually defines who you are and what your life will be. And um, Obviously, people are born into different circumstances. Some people are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Others aren't. But you see people time and time and time again who come from the worst possible circumstances um, make the very, very most of their life and, and the reverse. Uh, true. Uh, and and I, I'm not saying anything new or original, but it's very, very clear to me looking back because I don't look back on my life very much. Mm-hmm. I look forward or right in front of me. So the pandemic gave me this chance to look back when I'm in my early now mid sixties and, and, and so take step off the merry-go-round and, and sort of try and make sense of it. And I hope that in doing that, uh, it will be of, of interest to other people because I think it applies to everyone, whatever industry you're in, the lessons and the things I say in the book apply to any person in any walk of life. And that is really one of the major things. And the other third theme that comes through is is the fact that it's um, that, that life has to be lived to the fullest? You know, we so many of us get caught in a rut or uh, and caught in something we don't want to be doing, and, and we feel like we're treading water, uh, and and they're interconnected because if you do make choices to change that, your life will move, and you'll get out of that rut. And so I'm making it sound like it's a self-help book, which it clearly is not. Um, And none of these things are, as I say, particularly original ideas or thoughts. But hopefully I convey them in a way that may actually just open a door to people to go, oh, yeah, I've heard that said before, but now I see why. Uh, And I hope that's all I can hope, that it has a much wider appeal than people who are interested in show business or you know, in a Brit thing in America or whatever. I, I, I think that's almost irrelevant. You're listening to actor and author Jim Piddick on The Richard Krause Show. Can you pinpoint a choice that really changed your life? There's in the book, you mm. talk about a lot of different things, a lot of choices that you make coming to America, uh, you know, doing a one man show in San Francisco, four months later, you're on Broadway. There's, there's all sorts of choices that are involved in each of these, these yeah. uh, moves in your life. But can you pinpoint something that just really changed everything for you? Well, I think that you, you just hit on that. When I first came to America, I literally had $100 in my mm-hmm. pocket. I'd been offered a job directing at the drama school I'd been at, who opened in Berkeley. And I had, before I came, thought, you know what? While I'm there, I might have a bit of spare time on my hand. I, I'd seen a one-man show in England and loved it. And I approached the writer, and he was a very successful writer, and he said, yeah, you can have the option to do in America. He said, good luck. I play about a soccer goalie in a country that doesn't even know what the word soccer means. Uh, an hour and a half one-man show. If you can get it produced, all power to you. And I went around every theatre in San Francisco in my spare time 
uh, in that three months that, that I was working there. And, and everyone rejected me, of course. They was like, unknown British actor with this play about thing. No, no, no. But at the last minute, just as I was about to fly home to England uh, and try and resume my kind of career there, um, this director from a small 1990 theatre said, oh, uh, do you still want to do your one-man show? We've had a show fallout. Can you get it up in three weeks? And I hired a director who was terrific, Richard Side, and he trained me and it was a nuts show I mean it was physically the most demanding thing anyone could ever ask and the the, the kind of the miracle of the show is that the actor is still alive at the end of it running <laughs> jumping you know it and anyway the show had four people in the audience in the second night and um they all sat in the front row it was a very intimate experience and as you say that the reviews came out the next day and it was sold out for the next don't know how many weeks and then extended and extended and that took me to New York uh, because a producer had heard about it there. And they ended up not doing the show. Someone else did later. But th when I was then in New York, but I'd already had a tape of the show and that got me an agent and I got an audition. And that first audition, I got cast in George C. Scott's Present Laughter, which he was directing, a Noel Cowd play, and he was starring in. And I literally went, as you say, from being nowhere to starring on Broadway and in a hit show in the space of it was about actually closer to six to seven months. And that that taught me that take risks. Don't, you know, think nothing's going to come of this because it can and all that work you put in. I mean, you can see I'm sitting in an office now with loads of scripts on the shelf behind me. I've got probably 25, 30 screenplays, television pilots that have never seen the light of day. But for every one of those, you know, oh, sorry, for every 10 or 15 of those, I've had one made. So it all counts. And those, again, are choices. And that was an early one when I was 24 years old, that, that choice to do that and to take that risk. And as you get older, we take less risks mm -hmm. as we have more responsibilities. But in fact, life is about that. It's about movement. And, and you can't just take the easy choice. And every time I've gambled, every single time, Ultimately, not immediately, ultimately it's paid off. Well, you're not afraid of failure either, which is another takeaway from the book. And in fact- No, I'm uh, used to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it uh, that you get used to it or is it that you learn something from it every time? Because if you only have success, just imagine you move to New York, six months later, seven months later, you're starring on Broadway. You could think, well, that was easy. It's yes. all going to be this easy. Uh, of course it's not. No, that was a, a confluence of events that happened to work out well for you, but but it, it's, it will never be easy. So failure has to come in to temper that a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it's that old kind of joke. I've worked uh, 25 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> You're listening to Jim Piddick on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, is available wherever fine books are sold. I think that, it's, again, it's a cliche, but nobody really learns much from success. Sometimes it can be interesting to other people or whatever. But you, you clearly learn from your failures um, or not. Some people don't. And sometimes I haven't learned, you know. I mean, I remember being told early on in my career by an older actor, for, I think the first job I had, he said, if you're going to make a career of this, you've got to learn to take rejection, not personally. You've got mm -hmm. to realise it's not personal. And he's right. Of course it's not. And you have to do that as an actor. But I still struggle with that. <laughs> I still sometimes go... Why? Why did they? Well, I mean, I, I, that doesn't seem right. 
but of course it's nothing personal whatsoever. Um, and you just keep, you get up and do it again and get up and do it again. And that's the same in any professions. Nobody gets an easy ride. Some people have easier rides than others, but nobody gets an easy ride. And um, even the people you think at one point I say in the book, I, I, I went through a period of being very envious of other people's careers because they seem to launched off into film and TV where I was not able to at that point in my life. And I was kind of envious of all these people, my, my peers in New York theater who were suddenly stars or had their own TV shows. And I was really couldn't get that door open at that particular time. And then I now look back and I go to each of those people I was so envious of, um, the vast majority haven't survived as long as I have. And the vast majority have had to deal with death or illness or you know, losing bankruptcy. Various things that have happened in their life that I have not had to deal with. Uh, so you know, it, the grass is always greener and it's so easy to compare yourself to someone else. And it's just no good comes of that. The only person you've got to compete against is yourself. And again, I'm sounding like a terrible self-help guru and I'm not. So please don't, don't think that this book is going to be preaching to you because if it's preaching to anyone, it's just preaching to myself. Uh, and hopefully the rest will entertain you with the, the craziness of the things that have happened. Well, this memoir, unlike many memoirs, names names. Yeah. Larry David is a, a, an a-hole of the highest order, and I explain why in the book. If I'd written this book when I was in my 20s or 30s, I would have been way more cautious. It's like, I'll never work again. Um, now I'm in my 60s. Uh, by the way, back then I wouldn't have had anything to write about, but um, now I've got something to write about and I really, really, really don't care anymore about that. And that, so again, it's a flyer, it's a risk. I did make sure with a lawyer that um, there's nothing that's libelous because A, it's all true. And B, I, I did it in a way that was, I think, kind and understanding, I hope, uh, or I would say I didn't understand this person's behavior. Right. Um, and I may be wrong. And I said, you can... Absolutely. Again, judge a book by its cover. You can actually catch someone on a bad day. And, and I've often, there was a couple of people in the book I talk about who my first impression was, oh, these are really awful people. And then they turn out to be lovely. So uh, you can be wrong. Um, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Jim, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you doing your homework and reading it and, and asking such very, very smart and perceptive questions. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Jim Piddick on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, is a funny and frank memoir that you can find now wherever fine books are sold. A big thanks to Jim Piddick. Pick up his book for more stories like how he arrived in the U.S. with only only $100 in his pocket. Lots more in the book that we couldn't get to today. Also, a great big thanks to Andy Garcia for making some time today. Find his new movie, Big Gold Brick, available on digital and on demand right now. It's on VOD, easy to find, and it's offbeat, but a lot of fun. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. (laughs) 